came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome back, everyone, to Disasters Deconstructed. I think we might start this episode off with a joke. What do you think, Senya? <laughs> Yeah, sure. I've got a story. I'll be able to tell you a story. Do you want to start? Okay, a story. Go. Okay. So this morning, I saw a neighbor talking to her cat, right? Like, and it was obvious. She thought that the cat understood her. And I came into my house and told my dog, we laughed a lot. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. Hello, everyone. It's been a long season. <laughs> yeah, we made it to episode 15 so far. Wow. Mm -hmm. Good. It has been good. But I was saying yeah. to you the other day that I'm about ready for a small break. Yeah, me too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this season is kind of a season that has been recorded from our bedrooms. <laughs> I hope um, the next one won't be. That doesn't look likely. <laughs> no, true. Yeah, come on. Give me some hope. You know, we talked about hope so much um, <laughs> this season. Yeah, we did. But... Um... I think we're going to have at least one more season recorded from home. It'll be all right. Yeah, oh well. It'll be all right, I agree with you. And actually, talking of another season <laughs> recorded from home, I think um, this is what we're going to discuss today, right? We're going to talk about pandemic a little bit more. Yeah, looking forward to it. We obviously have done different episodes that have touched on COVID and we did some specials. Um, and obviously we did our live stream recently mm -hmm. too, about our disaster capitalism and COVID work. Um, but today it's going to be fascinating, I think, to go more into talking about the public health side of this and, um, just generally different health impacts on people. Yeah, totally. So what we've got for you today is um, a discussion about the public health crisis and how we as a society haven't really put adequate measures in place um, to hold the spread of the virus. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about public health and disasters with Dr. Sarah DeYoung. Sarah is a professor in sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware and core faculty at the Disaster Research Center. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Sarah. Oh, it's great to have you. Hello. Well, we've been following your research, and I know that you have been working on public health. That is, of course, extremely apt now. I think we've all discovered uh, everything about public health that we kind of never thought about. Um, and this has been quite a lot of discussion lately um, in the UK and also now in the US um, on the impact of the pandemic on productivity and also on kind of well-being um, and so on. And in particular, there's been quite a lot of focus on women, which, you know, to me highlights that many gendered issues um, 
actually go unnoticed, right? And pandemic made them uh, quite explicit. But something that we haven't really heard much about is the impact of uh, the pandemic on birthing and pregnancy. And I know that you've been working on this and I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about this. Sure. Yeah, that's a, um, a great question. Thanks for asking that. I I got a small grant from the University of Delaware's um, internal research mechanism at the beginning of the year. And so I used um, some of those funds to gather some data from um, from women who gave birth during the pandemic. And I had a graduate student, Michaela Mangum, working with me. Uh, she's a student in our disaster science and management program. And we gathered data from 200 women who um, gave birth or who were pregnant during the pandemic. A few of the respondents were still pregnant when we um, gathered the data, but most of them had given birth since the pandemic began. And we gathered these data during the summer and the um, the respondents ended up coming from 34 different states in the United States. So we had a broad spectrum of location in terms of where the women were from. Of course, it was focused on um, women here in the United States and families um, and not just women. Um, anyone who had a baby um, could take the survey, but we had mostly women in our sample. And what we found was that there were a lot of challenges for the respondents who gave birth during the pandemic. And those ranged from psychosocial issues to um, other types of complications and um, a lot of confusion and uncertainty surrounding hospital policies and some issues during the postpartum time frame. Um, so there, really, there were so many issues. We, we actually have a paper in review right now, so I don't want to give away too many of the, uh, <laughs> of the key findings. But what we really found um, confirmed some of the past studies that we've done on disasters and birthing and pregnancy, which shows that when people are separated from their social networks, they they tend to do worse in terms of um, some of these psychological outcomes. And with the pandemic, that's still true. So in my past work on evacuation and infant feeding, um, caregivers had a harder time when they're separated from their primary caregiver or their lactation support or their family. And the same is true during the pandemic because people were being released from the hospital sooner after giving birth, that that meant less time for possible interventions if mm -hmm. there um, was a possibility for postpartum mood disorders or um, and that also meant less time spent with the mother in lactation services. And so a lot of the respondents had challenges with breastfeeding and they mm -hmm. felt that their breastfeeding journey ended earlier than it might have because they were discharged so early from the hospital. Wow, um, that that is pretty significant, and I'm glad that you're looking into this because I, you know, I haven't really seen um, any research looking um, in these issues, which are extremely important, right, for us as a society. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about the impacts of pandemic on families with infants and you know babies, kind of small children? Yeah. So again, one of the main areas that I'm looking at with the research is infant feeding. So infant feeding is really important because the early days of nutrition um, can be related to all kinds of health benefits for infants. And so breastfeeding reduces instances of asthma, obesity, and all kinds of other things that might go wrong um, early in an infant's life. And even later in life, there are some indicators that there are many health benefits to breastfeeding for both the infant and the mother. And so during the pandemic, um, people who are doing research in this area are really concerned about an increase in um, 
predatory marketing of infant formula companies. So preying on this opportunity to make women more fearful of breastfeeding so that they would switch to formula sooner. Um, And almost 75% of the respondents in our sample had received free uh, samples of infant formula, either when they were in the hospital or when they were released. And so this is really um, not a good sign because this is a time when you want women to be encouraged to breastfeed and continue breastfeeding because we know now that there's evidence that there there are antibodies and um, really um, immunological benefits to continuation of breastfeeding. So during COVID, breastfeeding becomes even more important. And so this predatory style marketing of infant formula is a huge concern. And it's It's important to note, um, which I was going to mention later when we talk about policy, but the United States has not in any formal way signed on to the WHO code, which is the World Health Organization's monitoring and enforcement of breast milk um, substitutes Mm -hmm. and marketing. And so with the United States not signing on to this, there is no really legislative teeth or enforcement practices to make sure that, say, those Um, infant formula samples aren't necessarily being sent or aggressively given to families who have just had a baby. And this becomes more serious when we're looking at um, Black and Hispanic and Indigenous women. Um, There have been research that shows that they're given infant formula at greater rates in hospitals. So that increases the disparity. And there's a lot of concern in the research community that these disparities between um, minority women and white women will increase during this time in terms of the support that mothers need to continue breastfeeding. Wow, that's kind of capitalism in action, isn't it? That's um, scary and fascinating. Yeah, it's it's interesting because really, if you look at um, breastfeeding and infant feeding issues and emergencies, it really is a social justice issue because also... As you know, in the United States, black infant mortality is much higher for black infants than it is for white infants. And so breastfeeding is really one of the ways that we can provide early interventions for supporting babies at the earliest stage of their life. And so during the pandemic, if rates of breastfeeding are going down, that will have long-term health impacts for, um, for minority communities. I want to come back to something Ksenia mentioned before in that we have seen these gendered impacts from COVID. And I know this is something that you deeply care about, Sarah. So I wanted to um, ask, what are some of the impacts or changes that you would highlight during this pandemic? Um, And especially, I was thinking you might speak to the issue as a woman in research and academia. Yeah, um, I'm really glad you asked that. So I think there are a lot of studies being conducted and data being gathered on pandemic parenting, but perhaps fewer studies on um, how that impacts women specifically in academia. I have seen some people collecting data on this, but from a personal perspective, it's really interesting because I do think that, um, you know, again, a moment ago I mentioned disparities, and I think that the pandemic will probably increase some disparities between um, academics who were doing really well in in their uh, course of research and those who need more support. So what I what I mean by that is I've noticed that, for example, if you already have research funding, 
it then becomes easier to get research funding because you already mm. have a grant and the reputation. Well, um, if you don't, if you're a junior faculty and you're newer in the field and you're trying to get research funding and then the pandemic happens, there are a lot of things yeah. that can slow that process down. And I think this is becoming more serious for women because mm. we're often tasked with being the main caretaker. And that means literally less minutes and hours in a day to write manuscripts, write grants, and then these you know endless back-to-back meetings. So you have to choose between a- attending um, meetings or you know perhaps sacrificing sleep to stay up late to work on a manuscript because childcare takes up so much of our day. Um, I and I saw a report just last week that four times as many women as men left the workforce in the United States with the mm-hmm. latest jobs report. Um, and a lot of that is attributed to the fact that children are um, at home. So even though the school systems are continuing online learning, it still requires a lot of care and attention. And if there's a dual income household and the decision is to keep someone home to watch the child, um, it seems that that sacrifice is falling um, more on the, or that, that decision is being uh, led toward women being the the primary caretaker even more so than before the pandemic. And then the other issue, of course, with being even um, even women who are advanced in their academic career, they might be the primary caretaker for their aging parents. And so being a primary caretaker for aging parents plus having children can add additional stress um, for those academics and those researchers because then they're balancing worrying about the health and welfare of their aging parents managing their children's schedule and then managing their their research obligations on the tenure track. So that can be quite a bit. I've heard some male colleagues joke about, um, you know, working in their home office and disappearing for the day while their wife watches the children. And um, (laughs) it's a little bit, it's a little bit discouraging and uh, it's hard to, you know, maintain morale (laughs) in that, in that, in that landscape. (laughs) So I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I don't know if I should laugh or cry, you know, (laughs) battling the emotions here. Yeah. Um, yeah, And, and, you know, and I, I think it's sort of, you know, of course, context matters. There's, there's differences for every family, but I think we should really think about unique family situations, especially single parents or a female headed household are going to be impacted even more so because of these gendered expectations. Yeah, yeah, mm. for sure. And, you know, I guess um, we're going back to policy, right? You've mentioned kind of early on. Um, policy has a lot to do with this. And I think we've now in the last six months, we've kind of seen how um, policies or decisions made at policy level uh, really don't work, right? And um, <laughs> I've probably said it a million times before, but um, here in the UK, we have National Health Service. And it's under extreme pressure, but at the same time, it kind of means that anyone can get access to free healthcare at any time, right? So I would never even think for a second that, you know, I, if I don't have money, I can't access healthcare. Um, so here, kind of healthcare is, um, that's a human right, and it's not something that one can or cannot afford. And so it always surprises me when I talk to my friends and colleagues in the US that that is not the case. Uh, in the United States, right? And I would love to hear your views on whether you feel that COVID has actually demonstrated the need for universal health care as kind of as a right in the US? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think really this is 
bringing some of these issues even more to the front and center of the, the national conversation around healthcare as a human right, as you mm-hmm. described a moment ago. Definitely in thinking in terms of the research that I do, um, one thing that is surprising to many of us is that paid family leave is still not available to mm-hmm. families in the United States. Um, because I think that also... Um, leads to an increase in health disparities because then if if families can't take paid family leave, um, it, then it really really sets them back for a long time financially, and it becomes hard harder to recover after um, the birth or adoption of a child. And then there are all kinds of other domino effects that the family has to face um, during that time frame. So if paid family leave really is necessary to improve community well-being, but that is something that we still do not have um, in this country. And looking at the the psychosocial impacts of uh, not having paid maternity leave really is, um, uh, I think this is something that we'll be studying for many years to come while um, while it's unattainable for, for families because you have psychosocial impacts like um, postpartum depression, um, lack in support and continuation of, of breastfeeding. It's harder to maintain um, long-term efforts for uh, breastfeeding if there's an imbalance between the work life and home and trying to bring a breast pump to work if you're working like 40, 50, 60 hours a week. It makes um, life harder for people who have infants and small children. And so I really think that paid family leave would be at the top of my agenda if I were if I were a politician during this time. But universal <laughs> health care mm-hmm. in, in general is so important. Um, my dad... Um, just went through his second round of cancer this year and well he had it last year and then this year and he was worried that he wouldn't be able to um maintain his health insurance if he retired early so he had to decide at one point between retirement and going to work at a a factory where he would potentially be exposed to covid Um, but he was afraid to retire because he wanted to maintain his health insurance so that he could get his cancer treatments so these are the kinds of decisions that families have to make um, when they are independently wealthy, which almost no one is. So, yeah. <laughs> so expanding um, affordable health care for families, again, will improve resilience for communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think that resilience in health care is related to disaster resilience because when you have healthier communities, they'll be able to recover um in a, in, a, in a more sustainable way after a disaster. But if people are already dealing with health issues and stress and financial stress, then it becomes much harder to deal with um, the disaster recovery process. And so, I mean, in terms of policy, do you think it will change? You know, what needs to change to for the U.S. to get there? Um, you know, I, I think that's a matter of leadership. I think that we need to vote in people that are going to stand behind these policies and really push hard on them and not, not let it go. Um, I do think that, um, there were some moments when, um, you know, there were some conversations during the early days of the Trump administration about paid family leave. And a lot of those talks never came to fruition. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that it will be important when, when and if there's a change in leadership um, to really put that back on the, the national spotlight. Yeah. I suppose that at least now 
universal healthcare is like a mainstream conversation. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I do think that, um, the, of course, the more progressive candidates are pushing for universal healthcare because of this this realization, and then of course the scientific data that show that families do better when they have access to preventative care and all kinds of other services that allow them to thrive. So we've been talking about hope on the show um, quite a bit recently, and we had Laurie Peak on um, in, I'm not sure which episode it was, but a fantastic episode earlier in the season. And um, I know that a lot of hope is tied to a vaccine for COVID-19. Like a lot of us are um, trying to uh, work at home with our kids at home as well. And everybody is kind of tired, you know, and <laughs> Um, let, let alone the, the very serious side of this in that more than 200,000 people have died in this country. Mm. But in the U.S., more than anywhere else in the world, maybe, there's kind of a distrust of vaccines and public health policy and even, even medical practice. Um, and sometimes people may have reasons not to trust the government, um, particularly if they're affected by different systems of oppression related to their race, class, gender, sexuality, age or ability um and i i think i've lived in different countries but i've never seen such distrust of institutions so how does this issue of trust show up in how people make decisions when there is a crisis like covid well you know broadly speaking trust is important in crisis communication you have to trust um the person or the group that's sending the message in order for the public health action to follow through the behavior to take place and, um, you know, as, as you were describing a moment ago, there is a history of oppression in the United States. If you think back to um, instances like the Tuskegee experiment in the 1930s, um, in times when minority groups were essentially, um, you know, not informed about experiments or diseases that they were purposefully um, not being treated for, exposed to. So I think that, that of course, there's a valid reason to be distrustful. Um, but, um, and, you know, and it's interesting because it's not always a, a far left or far right um, instance, but I do see emerging evidence just in my own media consumption that it does seem to be more um, that the groups on the far right are increasingly distrustful. Um, and so it's interesting to see the influence that that has on social media and trust. And I spend a lot of time reading what people are saying on the moms groups and how they're perceiving mm. trust in the vaccine. And it's interesting because then I've started seeing even people on the left saying we're fearful of what a vaccine would mean because there's a fear that it would be rushed um, mm. to delivery. And so you know, there are all kinds of concerns, and I think um, it's really important to understand why people are hesitant to um, engage in vaccination instead of just dismissing those concerns, because listening to those concerns can help us understand how to develop better outreach and better policies. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not an easy um, thing to untangle, but I think listening and um, gathering more data on those social factors for trust and vaccination will be really important. 
um, especially as the vaccination um, becomes a reality over time. Um, I think there will be a lot of public health campaigns and a lot more research that will uh, be carried out on those social factors and how people make those decisions. You know, I think what, what you're saying about kind of the outreach and the importance of understanding where the worry comes from is just so important. I was just talking to my mom yesterday um, or a couple of, I don't know, a couple of days ago, um, who is in Russia, where, you know, the government is saying that the vaccine is ready. And... They're also kind of explaining that the vaccine has been tested, but it's been tested on male, young male soldiers, because mm-hmm. in Russia, army service is compulsory. And so they've tested it on the basically the healthiest kind of proportion of population, right? The strongest and the healthiest. And now yeah. they're enrolling this um, vaccine. And, you know, my mom is kind of pretty healthy, uh, but she's not as healthy as an 18 year old bloke, mm-hmm. right? right? And it's, it's just really kind of scary to think, um, you know, what, what What would be the resu- result of that vaccine? Um, and of course, none of that is communicated. So I think it's just so, so important that we actually talk about this. Yeah, I think it's really important, again, to continue research on understanding the way that people perceive risk and how they weigh those mm. risks and their um, their understandings of, of, you know, the probability of, of getting sick if they get vaccinated or the probability of complications and really explaining to people the reality of the probability of those complications. Um, and it is interesting because before uh, this election year, um, I would also be very, very trusting of, you know, I've always gotten my flu shot. I always take my daughter to get her flu shot. I think it's really important, especially now because we don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system during this flu season. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, hearing people talk about their um, their hesitations about the COVID vaccine is an interesting conversation because a lot of people have been following different media outlets and you know, people are influenced by, um, you know, what they're hearing and seeing and uh, information seems to be also suppressed in a lot of ways um, and distorted. And, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of loud rhetoric coming from the White House. <laughs> and so understandably, a lot of people are, aren't necessarily trusting what they're hearing from the White House. Yeah. And I, I think I talk to people all across the um, political kind of it's not even a spectrum, it's a array. Like I hear a lot of different reasons for not trusting just in, in different areas. You know, sometimes it's because it's, it's not because of far right views, but it's because of, um, you know, being anti pharmaceutical industry, you know, yeah. and so, yeah. and they might be very left leaning, but, um, really not trust the, the, fact that there's so much money in politics and all this so mm-hmm. i just think there's so many reasons um here that i that i uh, listen to and i think you're right sarah it's all about listening and understanding where that's coming from because if you don't understand it then no matter what new knowledge you produce it's probably not going to be very effective at getting to like um allaying the fears because yeah. you, you've misunderstood where the fear is coming from. Yeah, I mean, even like when I see, you know, like in one of the social media moms group that I'm in, if I hear, if I see posts or conversations about not trusting, um, not even just the vaccine, but, you know, I've seen some moms in like different groups talking about, you know, the reality. Some people early in the pandemic, you know, and even now I've seen some chatter on some of these public forums where some moms groups are saying, is the virus real? And so that is such a 
challenge to overcome from a public health perspective, because if you don't believe the virus is real, it's really hard to get those people to follow through with some of these public health recommendations. And yeah. so um, I, you know, I, I, I think that's a challenge and we need to acknowledge that going forward too. But I, I think that um, that is linked with also the suspicion and the trust with the vaccination. And so understanding where people stand on, um, uh, on beliefs about the way that a virus is spread and how dangerous it is and what it means for our healthcare system, I think is important because I think once mm. people see tangible effects and, you know, the schools are staying closed and the economy's not doing so well. And once they see mm. these long-term impacts, um, you would think the needle would change a little bit on their belief in the virus and I do think that a lot of Americans believe that it's real and they are being cautious and they want to take precautions and take protective measures. But um, I think that even um, if a small group of people continues to question the reality of its severe impacts, that has uh, the potential to be very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you, Sarah. This is all so fascinating. I've got about a million questions for you, you know, about public health and maternity and everything else. But um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. I'm sure our audience will find it as fascinating as we have. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. It's been amazing to sit with you and we um, look forward to engaging in the future and maybe checking in with you in a future season about your work because it's, it's so, um, so great what you're, you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed.